Hey, welcome to this episode of the Health Via Modern Nutrition Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And this guest, we've had a long time coming to have him back on the program. I'm excited to welcome back the always provocative, always thoughtful, always very interesting professor, Benjamin Bickman. Great to have you back on the program. Jeffrey, thanks again for the invitation. I had a great time in round one, round two. Let's go. I'm ready. 100%. Yeah, it was one of our most popular episodes. And I think that your way to articulate exactly what's going on in the metabolism is one that's always helpful. So I know that I, I, I hope for this one, we'll dive deeper into the rat holes that we've all been seeing and, and as the space has been evolving. But before we go too deep in that rabbit hole, it might be good to step back and talk about your new book, Why We Get Sick, and how that's focused around your career looking at insulin, ketosis, some of these core, very primal metabolic pathways, and what we might be getting wrong in our modern nutrition perspective and how you're thinking, your approach. And I would say just the broader community that's around this space, you know, what is the current state of the art from a brief level? Yeah. So the purpose of the book was essentially to highlight what I do think, and I like what you just said this, to highlight the wrong perspective. And that is when it comes to chronic disease, we fail to acknowledge a common core that underlies almost every chronic disease, namely insulin resistance. And then when it comes to even our scrutiny of metabolic health in general terms, or, or, or more narrow focus, when, when we do focus on metabolic health, we aren't looking at the right marker. Namely, we our perspective is off. We look at metabolic health through the lens of glucose, when in reality, it's an insulin disease. And briefly to elaborate uh, and to focus on the book, it's uh, essentially the book makes the case, and, and I defend it with citations, of course, that insulin resistance is the most common health disorder in the world, and that it is relevant in virtually every chronic disease. You know, people look at these chronic diseases as if they're so distinct without knowing, as I alluded to a moment ago, that Alzheimer's disease and heart disease and fatty liver disease and infertility are all to some degree a manifestation of insulin resistance. The middle part of the book is where insulin resistance comes from, what are the lifestyle sort of origins or, or even maybe the mechanistic origins within the body or within the cells that cause insulin resistance. And then with that appreciation, the last part of the book is the solution, you know, what we do about it. What are the levers that we can manipulate in order to either protect ourselves from insulin resistance or to start reversing that those years of damage, because it is a very much a reversible phenomenon. That That's the purpose. That's the mission. And even professionally speaking, in a way that the book does sort of represent my professional goal, which is help people acknowledge the relevance of insulin resistance. Because when we acknowledge insulin resistance, when our paradigm has shifted to focus on that, we detect problems earlier with a little more specificity and nuance by, by looking at insulin, by scrutinizing insulin, and we treat it better. Because when we shift away from the glucose-centric paradigm, then we start to appreciate that we don't just want to lower glucose at all costs, including increasing insulin all the more. When we do that, in fact, the person can have perfectly good glucose levels, and yet they get fatter and sicker than they did before. And so when we appreciate the, the relevance of insulin, we also appreciate that we don't want to push it up any higher than it already is. That's a good and subtle point that I think 
most people that are just being introduced to the low carb community or the ketogenic diet community, they're oftentimes chasing blood glucose, right? Because that's very, very easy to measure. There's consumer medical devices that you can buy off the shelf, where as you're suggesting, insulin is the primal, the, the, the root cause where glucose is more of a conflated secondary side effect of having high insulin. So let's definitely unpack there. But before going into that path, I want to just pop back and talk about life. I mean, we've had to restructure our entire podcast studio. I have an in-house studio now. I know that looks like you're back on the university campus. I know you're a professor at the Brigham Young University. Um, how's life been? I mean, it's been five, six months since things have been shut down. So I'm basically have rebuilt, reoriented my life. I'm, I'm feeling super healthy, super productive and fortunate to be in such a place, but hopefully, uh, you know, things are going well for you and your family. Yeah. 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 They're just fine. And I like what you said though, Jeffrey, uh, I, I feel the same way. You and I are fortunate that our lifestyles, I think can adjust to the restrictions that have arisen because of a fear of COVID-19. And I'm not saying those fears aren't justified, but I do think that um, there are consequences that, that we need to consider when we consider COVID-19 and uh, going beyond just the single infected person. But some of my, so my family, we're weathering it just fine. Um, the biggest frustration is the pressure on homeschooling. We are not really a homeschool family. You know, it doesn't quite work. My kids just don't like mom and dad being the teachers and and they are frankly little hellions when we try to teach them so and i know they just simply respond better to their teachers so we do have some pretty serious restriction restrictions on schooling where here in utah in our school district they only go two mornings a week basically which makes it a little hard for us to continue with their chinese immersion which which they are all in because my wife and i don't speak chinese our our fluent or speak mandarin our fluent russian doesn't help with the kids mandarin homework so it's it, that's a challenge frankly cuz i don't know how you can really do language immersion which which utah does very very well cuz there are so many people who speak second languages or third languages, it's it's hard to do when you we only have your teachers for a few hours a week. So nevertheless, as a family, we're weathering it just fine. And thank heavens to my earlier point, I am fortunate to have an income that is largely independent of this. But I would add to this a, a comment about what I think our strategy needs to be moving forward. Now, I'd want anyone to appreciate that I'm not a virologist. I'm not an epidemiologist, but I feel strongly as a life scientist and a cell biologist that we need to appreciate the fact that I don't, I don't believe we're going to beat COVID-19. I believe this is a virus that is here to stay. It is a new part of our global ecosystem and our efforts to slow the spread and control it are, are laudable and invaluable, but any hope that we're going to have this groundbreaking, perfectly effective vaccine, I think is very naive. I, I hate to say that to, to offend anyone, but we can't hope that we're going to somehow beat this virus and it will just cease to exist. No, I strongly believe the reality is this is a virus we have to live with. We need to come to terms with it. Every one of us is going to get infected with it at some point. Let's do then what we can to shore up our own immune system, our immune defenses by ensuring based on the best data that our metabolic health is in check and where it needs to be because the data are simply too hard to ignore. Those that get hit the hardest are those that have an underlying metabolic problem. And indeed, 
the top three pre-existing conditions that virtually every single person with a serious COVID-19 infection has. The data suggests that it's 94% of everyone with a serious COVID-19 infection has at least one of these problems. Problem number one is obesity, then hypertension and diabetes. All of those are metabolic problems. So let's address our metabolic health, do what we can. And then when the virus does come, and while we've done our best to control its spread, it will come eventually. It will knock on the door, so to speak. Let's just make sure we are as ready as possible. Yeah. And then you mentioned obesity, cardiovascular issues, and diabetes. These are endemic in the American population. And these oftentimes are diseases of overconsumption and excess in, 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 in some ways to look at it. So it does seem to be just a tough storm where these are already endemic conditions in our population. And then you have something that is super high comorbidities with serious uh, presentations of COVID. So I, I'm, I'm with you on that, especially, again, not having virology or epidemiology backgrounds. But I think the scope of this problem is just so cross, the, cross domain at this point. You have to consider economics, public policy, government, social, cultural. And I think it's just such a hard problem because it has become politicized. It's almost as, you know, even wearing a mask or not a mask is a political statement. And um, I'm not sure what to do about it because people just aren't talking. And if they're talking, they think it's because of a political nature rather than from a science and a factor of a nature. But I think, I think where you're landing out, which is that this is going to be endemic in the population, like the presence of coronaviruses, especially COVID-19 or variants of. Yeah, I think it's naive to say, hey, we're going to like kill this thing and it's never going to be back. I, I, I think we both wish that would happen, but you cannot bank on your entire government policy and school policy and economic policy and healthcare policy on that, I don't know, sub 10% likelihood. Yeah. Oh yeah. I agree. I agree. This, the sooner we, in fact, there's almost a, there are silver linings here and and you mentioned restructuring your life. I, I do think there's something valuable to ask, well, what can we learn? I think one valuable lesson is to learn that we aren't omnipotent that despite our incredible advances in so many areas, there are still these fundamental little bugs, you know, these viruses, these bacteria, that despite our best intellect and our best strategies, we are always living in an environment where nature is essentially trying to kill us. You know, there's, we just shouldn't have this myth of some harmonious existence. It is the nature of, well, nature to destroy things. And we do our best to fight entropy, that. right? Yes, well, like a that's law of right. Thermodynamics, entropy. We do our best to fight this, and yet I do think maybe one of the silver linings is we get a little extra measure of humility and realize that we are not omnipotent. That one little viral infection can wreak such havoc. It's let it let us be a little humbled. I think we'll be a little better for it, um, and let us reevaluate our priorities and how we work and why we work, um, how we spend our time, how we spend our resources, our money. These are all precious things. And, and I think that there can be an upside here. We, there can be in a reevaluation of what we do and why we do it. Those are good things. So hopefully there can be some valuable lessons learned, albeit perhaps in a painful way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we mean to be callous for loss of life, but I think I'm with you hundred percent where, I mean, in we're lucky that the R not is not even bigger and the case fatality rate is not even bigger, right? Like mm -hmm. if you have Ebola plus super like death rates plus, yep. you know, 
some, you know, something like chicken pox level infection rates. I mean, that's going to kill all of us. And, and luckily we're not, at, you know, looks like we're quite narrowed down that we're not in that kind of band of case fatality or virality. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I, I think it's, um, taking the silver lining and I, and I think you're, you're spot on, right. Which I think in our today's culture and society, we're so abstract away from our physical based reality where we don't think about our physical resilience much because everything's so convenient. You can have yes. delivered your information delivered, your entertainment delivered, and you almost think that you're abstract, you're separate from nature, that your physical chassis of, a, of an instrument is, 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 uh, is almost just a carrier for your intellectual pursuits. Yeah, yeah. Like, all, like our jobs are mostly creative, right? It doesn't matter what our physical body really needs to function. We're not, you know, day laborers. You know, I think most of our listeners are probably not, you know, use making their livelihood through their muscle although i'm sure some are and 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 that's that's great as well so i think it is a good reminder that yeah exactly that humbleness like let's prepare and realize that we're not we are of nature we have derived from nature and we are the same uh vulnerabilities as any other animal or species yeah that's right i agree 100 percent. yeah so i think that's like a great segue into you know very ambitious statement right ambitious question like this field of medicine is to ask, you know, why do people get sick? And you're proposing to answer that in a fairly novel way. Can you trace the story, the research, and the path to get you to have this hypothesis out there? Yeah, yes. And so to be clear, the, my hypothesis and the thesis of, of why we get sick was that there is one common variable, perhaps among others, I make no, I don't want to make any claim that it's the single variable here, but that there is a common core that underlies almost every chronic disease in a very heavy way, and that is insulin resistance. So that's the primary thesis. My, my route, the, the path I took to come to that idea, the crystallization of which is the book, really was derived from my teaching when I first was hired as a professor, I was given the assignment to teach a class called pathophysiology. I felt ill-prepared for it, um, although in hindsight, I was more prepared than I thought. I had had a great degree of physiology training. Um, my PhD was bioenergetics, which was a little bit of physiology, but more nutrient biochemistry and, and human metabolism in a bigger sense. But I'd had enough physiology as a background that the fact that there was a physiology component to pathophysiology made me comfortable in that regard. But pathophysiology is an exception from conventional physiology, where conventional physiology is the study of body systems and how they interact. That is the underlying comment there is how they inter interact when they interact properly and well. With pathophysiology, it's when things aren't working well. It's when an organ or tissue is failing to do its job. Homeostasis has been left behind. And, and so we talk about the reasons for that departure and then what it looks like in a whole body perspective. When I started preparing those lectures, feeling a little unprepared for that topic, I was determined to lean on whatever strengths I could. And so when I would prepare a lecture at first, I would think, and I was preparing, say, the diabetes lecture. And I thought to myself, I'm really going to focus on insulin resistance because that'll be one topic where my students can really nod their heads and say, oh, I have a professor who's an expert in this and feel very gratified and enriched. And then I can feel comfortable on that material. And then over the years, as I've been teaching for 10 years, it was just within a couple years, I found that 
the relevance of insulin resistance, which was my expertise as a scientist, was far more broad-sped than I imagined. And I remember vividly when I started preparing the lecture about blood vessel pathologies, and I focused on hypertension, you know, what are the variables driving an increase in blood pressure? I was dumbfounded. It's embarrassing to say because I'd already been studying insulin resistance for years at this point, and yet I never really appreciated the relevance of insulin resistance in hypertension. And then I go on, and so I made sure I worked that into the lecture because I thought, well, this gives me something else to talk about with regards to my area of expertise, and I can sound smarter and be more comfortable than otherwise. And then I start preparing the lecture after you know a year or so, I'm revising my lecture on Alzheimer's disease. And sure enough, there's this incredible strain of evidence suggesting an underlying role of, of insulin resistance in the ideology of Alzheimer's disease. And the same thing happens with fatty liver disease, with infertility in men and women, the two different primary infertilities, insulin resistance relevant to both of those, and on and on and on, where it got to the point where I could basically highlight insulin resistance in almost every disease that we discussed. And so I do, I make sure I take a few minutes at the end of each of these lectures and I just highlight some of the studies, some of the primary literature published emphasizing a role for insulin resistance causally in whatever disease we're looking at. And I do that because if my students, all these future nurses and doctors almost exclusively, if they can come out of this undergraduate class appreciating that there is a lifestyle metabolic component to each of these chronic diseases, it will change how they interact and treat a patient. So when a, when a, rather than if a patient comes in and they have diabetes and hypertension and infertility, Rather than giving them three prescriptions for three different medications, I've convinced myself that my students will look at that patient and say, all right, you have seemingly three distinct diseases, but the reality is all of these diseases are manifestations of one common problem. I am going to confirm that one common problem by actually measuring your degree of insulin resistance, which is almost never done. And then upon the confirmation, if they confirm that the patient has insulin resistance, well, then they can change the way they would treat and tell the patient, look, you can leave my office with three different prescriptions. The invariable consequence of this will be that you come in every year and we increase the dose of your prescription or have to give you another drug because that prescription, that drug has become essentially useless. You become resistant to it. Or you can leave with the prescription to change your lifestyle. It won't be easy, but it will directly address the root cause rather than simply addressing manifestations without ever improving the root cause. That is my long-winded way of, of, of basically describing how I came to the central thesis of why we get sick. It was me wanting very genuinely to make sure my students had what I considered to be the most relevant research um, from a, a teaching model. And, and to do that, though, Jeffrey, you'll appreciate, I did not rely on a textbook. When I, when, when I looked at the textbook that I was sort of inherited when I adopted that class from the uh, faculty member who was retiring, I could sense this real lack of metabolic health being discussed. And even though I didn't know the scope of it, of insulin resistance at the time, I still knew something was missing. And so I decided, well, I'm a scientist. I'm going to teach this class like a scientist, and I'm only going to rely on peer-reviewed primary source literature. And so when a student goes through my lectures, it is slide after slide with little citations in the bottom corner 
to emphasize the story that I'm telling, whatever the image is, whatever the graphic, whatever the animation is. And that's how I look at my teaching. I'm basically telling a story and there's pictures to go along with that story. I have little citations that I always encourage the students to look up to make sure they know that what I'm showing them is not my opinion and it is not someone else's opinion. It is hard, cold data. And that is necessary because at the risk of really over-explaining, when I show them the data of lifestyle changes and dietary changes as a therapy, they may be inclined to say, well, I don't agree with you that controlling carbohydrates is an effective strategy. As their professor, I can say, you can't disagree with this because I'm showing you data. What you can do is find studies to refute it. Find equal studies of, of comparable control, comparable intervention, and refute the data. Then we have something to talk about but you can't say, I disagree. You have to challenge the data at their core. And I welcome that. I, I, I deeply do. I welcome the cynicism. I welcome the scrutiny. And I always encourage my students, the same degree of cynicism and, and skepticism you have for what I may show you, all I ask is that you have the same, you share that, you apply that same skepticism with what other professors are teaching you when they tell you the opposite of what I'm telling you. Ask yourselves, were they sharing with you random uh, controlled human trials or was it, was it just what a textbook told them to tell you? Challenge it with the same fidelity with which you're challenging my idea and then let's talk. Anyway, that's, that's the thesis for the book. No, I, I think that's, I mean, well stated and especially helpful to just see that journey. I think to me, even if people come up with alternate interventions and they're non-inferior or non-superior, then great, we have more treatment options. Yeah. And I know that some people want to have that choice. And if we have more options for people, even greater, there's no need to denigrate any specific intervention choice if it, as you're saying, has randomized controlled trial data in humans that justifies and the data suggests that this is useful. That's exactly right. And, yep. and if you have multiple other opportunities, great. Like there's more tools in the toolkit to help make people healthier. So I think it's cool to just, from a scientific journey perspective, it was sounded like it was trying to answer and, and explain to students and you just kept going back to the same primal root cause. And then that got you thinking, hey, maybe there's some, more of a universal aspect here. And I think that's, to me, seems to be like a common pathway of science, which is that maybe some people have like some a priori theory. Maybe this is what physicists do. They come up with a entire framework in their head and they just make it in a math equation and write it out and then have uh, experimentalists, you know, 20 years later when the engineering catches up to actually prove that the Higgs boson weight is this or, or whatnot. And it sounds like you were able to do this in a, a little bit more tighter feedback loop where you were getting more and more data to see some of these chronic conditions that were so ubiquitous in our society and just seeing that there's all of these things had the similar root cause. And that's how you started formulating a broader, more universal construct. Yeah. In fact, yeah, well said. That was eloquently stated. Yeah, I do think that's, that is a good way of explaining the process. And I would want, again, I mentioned this a moment ago, I wouldn't want someone to think that that I am being so naive or, or dare I say, ignorant to, to uh, conclude or suppose that insulin resistance is the only variable. No, I'm not saying that. But it was... It is truly shocking just how relevant it is where not only can you find, was I finding and I cite evidence indicating correlations between insulin resistance and diseases. And of course, a correlation can only take you so far. But once you dig one step deeper and you find actual cellular mechanistic 
um, molecular mechanisms, that is, that connect insulin resistance to the explicit origins of the pathology, then it becomes suddenly impossible to ignore. And so I will strongly defend my thesis, which is insulin resistance is a core problem. And my use of the indefinite article, a core problem, is very deliberate here. I'm not claiming it is the single core problem. Undoubtedly, no question, many of these diseases have more facets than just insulin resistance alone. But it is a facet that is absolutely relevant, and we overlook it at our own peril in, in as I mentioned, detecting problems too late and then even mistreating the problems, even misdiagnosing the problems by failing to acknowledge it. Um, the data are strongly in my favor with that perspective. But again, I'd want anyone to know, I'm not claiming it's the only variable, but it is a powerful variable that when we address it and we manipulate it explicitly with lifestyle changes, the disease outcome gets better. Yep. It's like uh, the way I think about it, it's like, a, it's a very strategic lever. There's other levers that you can play around with, but this one hits so many core uh, root cascading effect or pathways that are viable for all of these conditions. So let's, let's dive into the mechanisms a little bit more deeply. So I would say that likely most of our audience is familiar with how to measure blood glucose. Uh, we've talked about continuous glucose monitoring, uh, oral glucose tolerance tests, and I feel like that's oftentimes very conflated with insulin resistance. And I think you're one of the more clear folks articulating that these are very related phenomena, but are not the same phenomena. Uh, can we unpack that and talk about when these two different phenomena might be bifurcating in terms of uh, how you measure them? And are there cases where they might be con like diverging and, and, and telling different stories? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, I love that um, segue. So, yeah, our our this is touching on what I've mentioned earlier already, where we need to shift the paradigm when it comes to clinical practice, and and step away from the glucocentric paradigm and appreciate insulin, because they are they are not the same. But I've had a conversation once. I was invited to do a grand rounds talk at a local hospital, and I was emphasizing this need at the conclusion of my talk, emphasizing the need to look at insulin. And I had this almost circular kind of bizarre conversation with a physician. And, and the physician was saying, well, uh, Ben, we're measuring glucose, so we're getting it. And I said, no, 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 no. You need to measure their insulin. And then he replied, well, we are. We're measuring their glucose. And I said, no, you need to measure their insulin. And in his mind, the two were, were synonymous with each other that saying him invoking the need to measure glucose was the same thing as insulin because it was it was inconceivable in his mind that the two would ever depart that they would ever be uncoupled and and I thought I was thinking to myself as in the midst of this conversation I'm thinking one of us is is crazy you know and I don't think it's me because the conversation like I said it was just kept going circular it's like my little kids arguing he hit me first no she hit me first you know it just never ends but they are not the same thing. Uh, and while they are often coupled in a healthy state, they are one goes up, glucose goes up, insulin comes up, the consequence of which, I mean, each is a consequence. Glucose rises because of a dietary influx of carbohydrate. Insulin will come up, that will lower the glucose, and then the insulin comes down. So usually they will move together, albeit with a slight time differential. But that is not always the case. And indeed, in insulin resistance, 
they are not the same thing. You can have someone at normal glycemia, and yet they've become so resistant to insulin that insulin is in fact now chronically elevated. That right there, that paradigm is insulin resistance. It's normal glucose levels with elevated insulin levels. In a, in a clinical chronic state of insulin resistance, that is the paradigm. But that is valuable to Can we appreciate. put numbers on them? Can we put units to yeah, oh, yeah, high yeah, you and bet. low? Yeah, so, so the person would have um, like 85 milligrams per deciliter glucose, and yet their insulin may be at 25 microunits per mil, which even then, conventional medicine, depending on the cutoffs, may say that's normal, and yet I'm I'm, I'm choking on my, on my shock yeah, trying to hold that down. High. It is ridiculously <laughs> high. And yet, yet that's almost part of the problem. And, and like every hormone, insulin does have a rhythm to it. And so I very much appreciate that there is a bit of a challenge in really nailing it down, which highlights both the problem in exclusively relying on insulin, but also the value in a dynamic insulin test when you glucose challenge ahead of time. But nevertheless, our failure to look at insulin means we miss that paradigm. We miss that situation of normal glycemia yet elevated insulin. But my point that I got distracted on was we don't even have consensus cutoffs for insulin. It is a variable that has been so largely ignored that the ranges are so massive to, to make them almost irrelevant that someone can come in with 25 microunits of insulin. And I would say that is shocking. And, and maybe a conventional clinician would say, oh, it's, it's fine. There's just no appreciation for what the insulin should be. And I will say conclusively, it shouldn't be in the 20s. Maybe low teens is acceptable. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure like when I come in, um, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm curious your numbers, but I, you know, I've had friends that are coming at one, two microunits, yeah, yeah. right? Like I think the last time I checked, it was like one or one or two. Yep, yep. And that is that is perfectly fine. And, and yet, uh, even, even then, a, a conventional clinician would say, oh my goodness, you're a type one diabetic, your insulin's too low. And yet you have to, you can't overlook the fact that their glucose levels are totally normal, which in the case of type one diabetes, it wouldn't be. So some would look at that insulin and say, that is too low. You're, you, you must be in the honeymoon phase or... You, you're approaching type 1 diabetes, and that is just simply not true. We we are built to live, I believe, at a low insulin level. So that, that paradigm simply needs to shift to uh, appreciate that glucose and insulin are not the same, that in insulin resistance, insulin is elevated now, and the glucose will be normal. That actually is the inverse of what people can see when they adopt a low, a strict low carb or zero carb diet. In that situation, you can have people that have slightly elevated glucose. Their glucose levels may be hovering around the low hundreds, and yet their insulin is, you know, two microunits. In that case, you'd you, you would say, well, well, there's you've you've broken something. You've gone the wrong direction. And there might be some uh, uh, some truth to that idea, where one idea of looking at this. Um, the, the slightly elevated glucose levels in someone who's like zero carb. Uh, mind you, there are only poor explanations for this at best. And so I will just speculate, maybe add to the poor explanations. I, I hate to do that, but what we know it isn't, we know it isn't a result of elevated cortisol. Volick and Finney have looked at cortisol levels in people with long-term adherence to ketogenic diets and cortisol was not elevated. So some people will want to invoke cortisol and say, well, avoid keto because it increases cortisol and that'll strip your muscle. That is simply not true. That That is not borne out in the data. I can't help but wonder at the relevance of glucagon. And anyone who's known my 
my history of talks and, and social media, sort of YouTube talks, knows I've spoken on glucagon before. I, I actually do think it is an overlooked variable here that there may be people who are more, uh, I almost hate to say this, so I would want anyone to know I'm speculating here and I don't want to add to the kind of ever compli- ever increasingly complicated vernacular here, but it might be that they're, they're protein sensitive and they have an enhanced glucagon response to the protein they're eating. Roger Unger, who, who really is the, the most famous glucagon scientist, which is to say he's not famous at all, unfortunately, but he mentioned, he, he said that glucagon is the protein signal in the body. That when you eat protein, you have this spike in glucagon and, and, and you can get a spike in insulin, but that was part of why I wanted to include glucagon in the conversations of, of human metabolism and low carb, because I think when we're only looking at insulin and a potential insulin spike from protein, we overlook the fact that insulin's opposite, namely glucagon, also goes up, sometimes not only commensurate, but even greater relatively compared to where it was, although absolute levels of insulin are higher than absolute levels of glucagon, but relatively the change is greater with glucagon. But it's possible that someone has a heightened glucagon response when they eat protein, and that is keeping them, that is increasing their their glucose levels, or it's possible that they have some other, I don't know, I mean, some some other intolerance to the carbohydrate. In fact, let me introduce another perspective here. We often talk about metabolic flexibility, and rightly so, it appears to be very important, this ability to shift between the two metabolic fuels. We eat a mixed macronutrient meal, and we're in glucose-burning mode. A couple hours later, we shift back to fat-burning mode. And the ability to shift between these fuels is known as metabolic flexibility. Unfortunately, most people, because of their insulin resistance, are stuck in glucose burning mode, that they eat a meal and then a couple hours later, they should have shifted. But because of the chronically elevated insulin, they stay in glucose burning mode, even in that so-called fasted state or what should be a fasted state. That is metabolic inflexibility as we typically see it. They're stuck in glucose burning mode. I think you start to see something opposite potentially in long-term adherence to a ketogenic diet. And I don't mean to suggest that this is equal in, in pathological or pathogenic relevance. I do not believe it is. But someone can get in this opposite state of metabolic inflexibility where the long-term avoidance to carbohydrates and thus long-term low insulin has basically shifted the body into such a profound state of fat burning that they only reluctantly use glucose. And this is, I think, an accurate perspective to understand the what some refer to, and I appreciate this, this um, glu- adaptive glucose sparing, this where, where the body is very miserly using its glucose because there's so little coming in. And that could explain the slightly elevated glucose levels. And, and it also would explain why when someone suddenly does eat carbohydrate, you know, they eat a bagel and a glass of orange juice after long-term keto adherence, and they have a CGM like I'm wearing now, they may see that their glucose response is, you know, 50% more than it used to be, or or even maybe double the glucose has... They have an acute insulin resistance. Yeah, yeah. So in fact, I would say they have an acute glucose intolerance. But but what, what happens there, Jeffrey, to separate it, many will say, I believe erroneously, long-term keto adherence will cause physiological insulin resistance. I don't think we can invoke that term because insulin is low in those people. In fact, it gets exquisitely low. And that to me is 
an anthema to insulin resistance in general or true insulin resistance. Fair enough. Yeah. In, I, I in, see in where clinical, you're going with this. Yeah. So in clinical chronic insulin resistance or pathological insulin resistance like abounds, insulin is elevated. But even in physiological insulin resistance like pregnancy, where, where, where we say physiological because the pregnant, the insulin resistance is happening for an explicit benefit to both mother, well, mostly to baby actually, mom's insulin resistance promoting mom getting fat and promoting baby getting fat helps the baby ultimately. Even mom's increased fat mass is to help baby with lactation, is to ensure it's basically an energetic insurance to help get the baby as big as possible, as quickly as possible by making milk. But even in that case of true physiological insulin resistance, mom still has hyperinsulinemia. But in long-term low-carb adherence, the person has exquisitely low insulin. And when you just challenge the body with a load of glucose, it's simply that they are in this temporary state of this reverse metabolic inflexibility where they're stuck in fat burning. And when you load the system with the glucose, it takes some time for the body to get flexible again. But it does, and it does very quickly. You know, if you and I were long-term keto, we would eat that bagel and orange juice right now. It may take us longer to clear it than it would have before. But if we do the same thing tomorrow... But we'll readapt. We'll readapt. Yeah, we yep. clear it almost without any fail. And so I don't want people to look at these two states of metabolic inflexibility as equal. I do not believe they are. I'm unfamiliar with any pathology that will come from long-term fat burning, unlike long-term sugar burning, which is virtually every chronic disease that derives from insulin resistance. So the disease risk is not at all comparable, and the rate at which you can reverse it is also not comparable. But nevertheless, perhaps by acknowledging this reverse metabolic inflexibility, we can appreciate some of the genuine changes in metabolic fuel use that happen in a low-carb state. So your preferred, more precise terminology would be something like an acute glucose intolerance. Yeah. That you get readapted to once it. you reintroduce uh, glucose or carbohydrate back into a diet. Yes. Well said. I, I think that's, I think this is like worth like just, I think getting really, really precise because I think for folks who are still tracking, again, I think most people have gotten glucose, insulin, very, very correlated. And I think we're getting to like the next level, the deeper level of understanding where these are very associated, relevant, I, I think nicely coupled concepts, but there are edge cases that where they diverge and we need to really, truly understand them to really understand the system of what we're trying to solve. Perfect. Yeah, well said. Yeah. So now I think one thing that is interesting to, to comment on is why has the diagnostics not been there for insulin, right? Like glucose, I guess it makes sense, uh, a very cheap, easy thing to detect, very clinically relevant, relevant for type one diabetics, because you need to be tracking your blood sugar. If it's too low, you die too high. It's not good. So it makes sense. Insulin is kind of a second order in, impact here. So what would be your protocol to measure this? Are there people looking at doing continuous insulin monitors? What kind of tooling? sensors would would be need to be developed or are in development on this front. Yeah. In, in fact, I like uh, what you mentioned, just the convenience of measuring glucose. I, I do think as much as I seem very um, intolerant or impatient with our um, glucose-centric paradigm, I want everyone to know that I, I can appreciate it. I can appreciate why we got to where we are, our obsession on glucose. And I do think there's a historical and scientific perspective. The science you just touched on, it is so easy to measure a nutrient 
because all you need to do is put enzymes on a stick that will just literally oxidize the nutrient and you can get the current from that and quantify it as a level of, of nutrient. That's why we can do that with, with glucose. We can do it with ketones. We can do it with lactate. Any of these easily readily metabolizable nutrients we can do. And, and so that is scientifically why it's so why it's tempting to focus on glucose because it is so easy to measure. And then historically, it's forgivable as well because the main symptom of diabetes historically was without a doubt the polyuria. In other words, the excessive urine production. And that is where the term diabetes even comes from. That term diabetes is is basically polyuria or excessive urine production. And that excessive urine production is itself a direct result of the hyperglycemia. We have so much glucose in our blood, the kidneys can't reabsorb it all, so it's spilling into the urine and it's pulling water along with it, making a lot of urine that flies would be attracted to, unlike conventional right, urine. sweet urine. That's right. The dogs right. would come and lick it up. So there was something observably different about it, quantifiably different about that, not only the volume, but the composition of it. So we have that historic context and the scientific context, but I would say more and more, it is increasingly less forgivable to ignore insulin because our tests are getting so much more accessible. But it is hard. Insulin is a hormone. It is harder to measure any hormone. I am unfamiliar literally with any at-home hormone diagnostic that is based on blood. And because insulin doesn't appear in the urine, you, good, good luck. You can't measure it in the urine like you can other hormones that will spill into the urine. And the benefit of the urine is that it is a clear medium, unlike the blood. So much of the complication of the blood and getting a little prick of blood is that you have the red blood cells themselves, which throw off any hope of creating an assay or a test that uses any kind of color or, or anything even similar to that. Uh, you have to get the plasma alone to, I, to then get the, so the clear medium of the hormone. But even still, I'm unfamiliar with any blood-based at-home hormone test of any hormone. But I think we're getting there. Not surprisingly, technology is catching up. I have seen people, I've not tested it myself, I've seen people using uh, a little um, uh, enzyme-based like paper form where they prick their finger and drop blood on a little square and it will give some kind of subjective level. There's like some kind of color spectrum that will give you an idea of what your insulin is. Of course, that's a pretty poor method. I mean, it's not objective, but it can give you a directionality at least, which is something. You could do that at home. I I am unaware of anyone who's nailed the, the actual at-home test with insulin and I think that a, a, a continuous insulin monitor is is probably at least a decade away. If I had to guess, it's it's we're not we're not close. I'm on I'm unaware of anyone getting even remotely close enough to do something like that. Um, it will it will be groundbreaking. I know that people are looking at other analytes. I, I know people are looking at other analytes beyond glucose on a continuous yes. session. But yeah, and I think there's value there. The sooner, like if we had a device, if this device, if 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 this the CGM. And the app, so I, this is an app called Levels, which is, they're really doing fun stuff in trying to give people some understanding of the metabolic responses to foods, which I think is just wonderful. But I do see the day coming when this little device will tell me my glucose and my ketones and my lactate. And each of those do have relevance 
not only to my metabolic health, but also my risk of, say, type 2 diabetes. One of the unappreciated facets of type 2 diabetes is this failure to burn lactate. And so you can detect, just like I'm saying, you can't just rely on glucose as the marker of type 2 diabetes progression. You need to look at insulin. Well, lactate might actually be better than glucose because, because lactate must be metabolized in the mitochondria and mitochondrial dysfunction is implicated as part of the origins of, of type 2 diabetes, you can burn glucose outside the mitochondria so you could maintain a normal glucose level, but you can't fake it with regards to lactate. So early elevated lactate levels, or, or rather elevated lactate levels, is an early sign of type 2 diabetes. And so it can become somewhat predictive in a way that glucose alone cannot. Yeah, that's interesting. I've been thinking more from a sport context where one of my hypotheses is that high lactate flux or high lactate turnover is obviously beneficial for all sorts of sports performance. So, and, and I think that's like, you know, quite hard to measure flux, but at least you're getting some level in terms of how you're clearing through if you have a continuous rate. But yeah, if you can detect ketones, lactate, glucose all continuously, that's a, that would be a huge for, for athletic performance as well, right? Because now you can be really dialing in your nutrition on yeah, demand. Right. You know what though? Let me just say, uh, because, because of your interest and your listeners' interest in ketones and the effects of ketones on cognition, one thing that is so interesting, just because we mentioned lactate, one of the increasingly used cocktails, if you will, or interventions for someone who's, a, who's had traumatic, traumatic brain injury is to circumvent, traumatic brain injury is associated with an acute um, glycolytic defect. And so what you do is you circumvent the reliance on glucose by giving them ketones and lactate. So in the, tra in the traumatized brain, lactate becomes part of this cocktail of nutrients that helps the brain maintain function despite the trauma. So we always focus on ketones, and I think that is absolutely relevant. Ketones are no doubt a bigger piece of the energetic puzzle than lactate alone is, but even lactate helps fill some of that energetic gap that we see with the traumatized brain. Oh, yeah, 100%. I've uh, spoken with George Brooks over at UC Berkeley, yes. who's done yes. a lot of the, the He's, lactate He is work. the lactate legend, super guy. Yeah. I, I, and maybe that's, we're, while we're on this topic, it just seems very interesting that both lactate and ketones were essentially associated as metabolic waste products. And they were like, okay, lactate's useless. Like we got to clear it. Ketones are bad. And now within, you know, the last 10, 20 years, both of these states and both of these substrates are being rehabilitated into something, oh, there's value here. And I think if you look at the studies for, uh, you know, they're crushing rat brains, both with ketones and with lactate, you're seeing quite compelling neuroprotective uh applications, at least on the animal brain, uh, for those two substrates. So absolutely, you know, that's something that we're looking at in terms of combining, stacking, uh, different fueling to go around, as you mentioned, a glycolytic defect on, on brain metabolism, hundred percent. Yeah. Well said. I like it. I like, I like how you emphasize that these were both considered metabolic garbage and boy, what a Renaissance and, and what a, what a beautiful, what a cool thing it is too to, to be reevaluating what we thought we knew. And this is part of what drew me into human science in the first place and in metabolic health. It was this, this stark realization as a master's student, when I stumbled on this paper published just a few years prior that found that fat cells are producing hormones, including pro-inflammatory hormones. To me, that was, that was monumental. It, 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 it not only gave me an appreciation for fat cells that I never had and, and, and put me on the course that I'm on literally now, but it also helped me realize that our 
the science is a living, breathing thing that we, we think we know everything. So we put it in a textbook, which is why partly I don't rely on textbooks as a professor. It's too slow. And it lacks, it, it shows too much of the bias of the author of the textbook. Not that it's deliberate, not that it's ill-intentioned, but we, no one can know everything. And so when you've put it all in a textbook, you've already, you've locked in a paradigm. I'm just, I hate being locked into. And, and so this, this case of ketones and lactate, this renaissance, us appreciating what they are and what they do. In fact, I shouldn't even call it a renaissance. It is us for the first time, certainly in the case of lactate. Yeah, really realizing this is not what we thought. Ketones, I think, had more of a up and down history, even from the 1920s, finding that ketosis would basically cure migraines. It's had more of a, a circular appreciation over the last century, but lactate was almost uniformly laughed at. And then you had guys like George Brooks. Really, I love that you mentioned him. I don't think I would have otherwise. These scientists who have been just shouting from the background saying, this isn't the villain you thought it was. In fact, let's start to appreciate it. And indeed, it is a full-on mitochondrial substrate for energy, most especially by the brain. Yeah, I just see it from a beauty perspective. I, I think we're so arrogant to say, oh, like the body is so poorly quote-unquote designed that it has all these metabolic waste products. Like, no, these are super valuable signals that impact and are useful in all these different use cases. So to me, it's just like an elegance of the system where, wow, it wasn't like our lack of understanding determined that, oh, these are kind of wasteful products that the body isn't efficient with all these extra substrates. No, we just didn't fully understand how those substrates impacted uh, and looped back into the system, which to me, it just, again, from a physics, a physicist's perspective, it just seems like more elegant solutions seem to be holding more truth, right? You know, like the simpler theory. And it feels like as we're rehabilitating all these substrates, what roles they actually play, it seems more of an elegant system that one would create if, if, if you know, we're not going to get into creationism argument or whatnot, if it's Yeah, no, no, not. no, but, I, I agree but, though. But I think it's just more beautiful from an observation perspective. I, I totally agree. In fact, I would want any listener to know that the nuance goes even further, not to get into it, but people would traditionally look at bilirubin as an exclusively pathogenic substance without appreciating just how powerful it is as an antioxidant. People would look at bile acids in the blood because we do have bile acids in the blood that get reabsorbed. We would look at that as an exclusive byproduct to be to be pushed back into the intestines as quickly as possible or into the kit into the urine. And yet even bile acids in the blood have metabolic effects where they stimulate brown fat and improve insulin sensitivity. And, and people are looking at bile acids as an actual therapy for type 2 diabetes. So there are these all of these molecules that, like we've already said, that historically were looked at as just byproducts to be eliminated as quickly as possible. And yet now we realize they are there for a reason. It, it makes you just appreciate the, the, just how remarkable the human machine is. Yeah, hundred percent. So as we define, I think some of the broader arcing themes, I know that we have a lot of audience questions, so I'm glad that people are engaged in this conversation. There's questions on how to best apply it. And I know that it sounds like in the latter half of your book, you're talking about interventions and all of that. And maybe we'll just kick off the interventional discussion uh, from a question from Kara. She asks that in the book, you mentioned that someone who eats low carb has a smaller insulin response to protein. Can you clarify that more? Was that, was that an accurately stated question? No, no, that that is accurate. So that is based on the work of Roger Unger that I mentioned earlier. Um, they found that 
the most insulinogenic amino acids like like alanine, that if it was being passed, if it came across the pancreas in in a low carbohydrate state, the insulin um, secretion was significantly lower. So there is, in fact, a direct reduction in the insulinogenic capacity or, or effect of amino acids if glucose itself is low. And, and Jeffrey, I think to kind of touch on continuing this, this theme almost that we've created of the, the, the in, incredible intelligence behind our cells and our bodies, I think some of what's relevant there is that in nature, a rich starchy source does not come with protein. That, that in, in nature, protein and carbohydrate don't really come together. And the only main exception I can think of of an actual rich protein source, like a good protein source, is dairy, which is high in all three macronutrients. And that's why I think it's the perfect little you know milkshake to make a mammal grow as quickly as possible because you're giving it literally all three macros in a high amount. So in nature, carbohydrate and protein don't... Uh, how about liver? When you yeah, have like well, high glycogen reserves, are you getting... You know, I, I don't know. That's a good question. If you were eating beef liver, I, I actually still suspect the actual amount of carbohydrate would be pretty low. Probably. I, but I, I don't exactly know. That might be an exception. And if it is, I, I, I really want to know because then I want to make sure I adjust the way I'm thinking about it. But even still, insulin and protein or amino acids, glucose and amino acids typically won't really come together in high amounts. But regardless, regardless of that, when when uh, the insulinogenic amino acids are going to the liver, to the pancreas, if it's happening in a low glucose state, the insulin response is in fact less than otherwise. In contrast, if it's high glucose and high amino acids, the insulin response is significantly higher than just the amino acids alone. And that is not to mention even the glucagon response, which you know, the glucagon is sort of insulin's opposite. What insulin wants to do at a cell, glucagon will do the opposite. And so when you appreciate the fact that those amino acids, when they cross through the pancreas, they induce a small insulin release, but induce in, in the greater glucagon release, it can undo even some of what someone might not want the insulin to be doing. In contrast, if there's high glucose and there's no need for glucagon to be released, and so then insulin just so massively wins that little kind of yin-yang that, that the seesaw or, or tug-of-war, you only get the insulin response without a commensurate or even modest glucagon response because the high glucose inhibits it from happening. Yeah. So in terms of, as, as one's thinking interventionally, how to best apply, do you have, you know, what are your ground rules? I mean, for me, when people ask me, what, you know, what are my ground rules for, for nutrition? Oftentimes I talk about intermittent fasting, limiting your eating windows, and then reducing, removing refined carbohydrate. Start there, I would say, as the most easy things I think are the least controversial. And then we can maybe go into, you know, plant fats, plant oils, processed oils, seed oils. We can maybe go into animal protein or animal sources of, uh, of, of food versus vegetable or, or vegan proteins. We can, we can nitpick around there. Do you have a uh, simple baselines that you want to share. I know that another uh, person asks about Ted Naiman's PE diet. How does your thinking apply here where it uh, looks like Andrew talks about um, what the PE diet really states is that carbs and fats are basically identical, identical in terms of insulin resistance. What is your response to that? I'm not completely sure that that's what Ted Naiman uh, actually espouses in the PE diet, but at least there's a, a, my understanding of the PE diet is that he really focused on protein as the central macronutrient and you trade off fat and carbs as more of the 
uh, fueling on top? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So th- these are great questions. So my general recommendation on improving insulin resistance, which is generally how I look at human nutrition, it is four pillars. And I, I, I elaborate this more in the book, but I'll be brief about it. And I, I put the, I put them in the order that I think is most valuable, but interestingly there, I think they're basically the same four you kind of mentioned in a way, or at least I heard the same four, you just put them in a different order. So I would say number one is control carbohydrates. This is a non-essential macronutrient and it tends to have, well, it does have the biggest spike of insulin. So put it in its place, control it. So focus on the least starchy, sugary um, carbohydrates that have the highest sort of nutritional value per unit of carbohydrate. And, And I generally, I think the easiest form of looking at that is focusing on fruits and vegetables um, but eat them, don't drink them. So that's just sort of my simple explanation of control carbohydrates. And, and it's not to say no carbohydrates, it's just control them. These have become the most predominant source of calories in our diet. And again, they are both non-essential and have the highest insulin spike. That to me is a no-no. So control carbs. Second and third, I kind of put together because in nature they come together. And that is prioritize protein and don't fear fat. And you touched on some of this a moment ago. And in both cases, protein and fat, I would say animal proteins are the best. Um, That is demonstrably the best in humans. They have the better amino acid profile. They have better absorption. They aren't loaded with unwanted molecules like metals or anti-nutrients that you do get in plant proteins. It's just a sad fact. Um, So um, prioritize protein and then don't fear fat. The thing about fat and protein, in nature, they come together, the best proteins, whey and egg whites and, and, and meat, they always come with fat. Fat helps protein work better. And so once again, I think there's a reason they come together where the study done in college-aged males found that when you stacked protein and fat together, it was more anabolic at the muscle than the protein alone. So there's something better about the two of them. That stands in contrast to protein and glucose. A similar study was done stacking protein and dextrose or pure glucose. It did not improve the anabolic effect of the protein alone. So don't stack your protein with carbs. You're just wasting space. Stack it with fat and you help the protein work better. Also, when you eat fat, the bile acids that I mentioned a moment ago facilitate the digestion of proteins. It helps us digest protein better, which is why some people who don't like eating whey protein, it makes their stomach hurt. When they eat the whey with fat, it, it goes away. And it could be that the fat's literally helping the protein be digested better. So those are rules two and three for me. Protein and fat have little or no effect on insulin. And for fat alone to have an insulin effect, you have to, based on what I can tell, you need to eat about five or so hundred calories of that pure fat. And then even then, it's a, it, about an hour or two hours, you see what is a statistically significant increase. But when you actually look at the curve, it is, it is minuscule. So whether how meaningful it is, I don't know, but I think it's, it's, it's easy to say that fat alone has little or no effect. And in most cases, I would say no effect. And then when it comes to fat, focus on natural fats, which are fruit fats and animal fats, the fruit fats being coconuts, avocados, olives, not industrial seed oils. But again, that's different. That's deeper level stuff that you said, and I don't think we need to get into that right now. And then the last pillar is one of the ones you started with, and that is intermittent fasting. I put that at the end, not for any really deliberate reason. It's just that I, I think that I, would, I wouldn't want for someone to start fasting, but they're still eating junk food in between those fasts. And so I like the idea 
of the fast being utilized as that last lever where the person has become fat adapted. Now, by following the previous three rules, their body, they've shifted to fat burning. They can comfortably use fat. They have that metabolic flexibility. And so not eating all the time suddenly becomes much easier because they can rely on their own fat cells for fuel. Because after all, that's what fat cells are. It's energy waiting to be used by the body in, in a sense, although fat cells do much more than that. But that is one prominent role for them. So once you've You've, you've adapted, you're, you're fat burning, and you're doing it comfortably. Now you can fast pretty easily, and it doesn't become just a, a glorious kind of binge purge cycle where every evening you're just eating yourself sick on junk food because you've not really adapted yet. So those are the four pillars that I believe are, are justified scientifically and practical. Now, with, with Ted's PE diet, I would say I think it's very clever, and I'm constantly amazed at, at Ted's, um, at at how he presents this these kinds of ideas. I, I really do think it's a credit to Ted, both his engineering mind and even dare I say his graphic design, um, you know, back not background but just his his ability to present it in a in a clear cut way. And that's something I I pride myself on as, as a professor and a teacher. And yet I see the way Ted presents things and, and I really admire how he does it. So the PDE ratio diet or the PDE diet, I think is valuable. Um, I, I will confess, I don't really know um, how Ted encourages people to apply it, but I think you're right in saying he says we should focus on protein and he invokes the protein leverage hypothesis, this idea that people will inherently eat to a, a certain point of protein. And thus, if you kind of stack the protein first, if you will, I'm not expressing that totally eloquently, but if you focus on the protein, you get your level of protein at a lower energy consumption, and that will naturally then facilitate combating obesity. And I think that perspective is, uh, is valid. I, I would only, I hate to say counter, because I really am an advocate of Ted's um, work. I think the counter is humans may have a higher reliance on fat than any other animal. And I think that is really well expressed by Stephen Kunain's work, this scientist, you know him, of course. He's, he's a, a scientist who studied brain function and brain develop, development and has kind of come around to this idea that ketones really are maybe the single most important fuel variable when it comes to brain development and brain function. And he has this very interesting book, called Survival of the Fattest. And, and then Mickey Bendori, I, I think the best way of describing him as a scientist is a maybe a nutritional anthropologist, but looking at human dietary consumption over the you know millennia. But he, he has a paper called Human, I think it's called Humans, the Fat Hunter, just really highlighting this drive that humans have for fat. And it could be that as fat is metabolized in a low insulin state, it becomes ketones, and then to Dr. Kunain's work, ketones then become such a primary fuel for the brain, and and I think especially in a newborn. And so I think that there is a nuance to the PE diet that I, I would say, I, I think Ted approaches it a little more objectively, that carbs and fat are just energy, although I don't know if he really feels that way. But regardless, I, I don't look at them the same way. I do think fat is an energy that is not um, comparable to carbs in that one fat is essential. There is yep, essential, essential fatty acids. Yeah. And two, it has little or no effect on insulin, which I consider a metabolic advantage for, for many reasons. But 
I would think uh, the PE ratio taken to its extreme, you'd almost continue to focus on the the numerator at the expense of the denominator. And I would say, well, where does it end? You know, are we getting a P to E ratio of 10 to one? You know, I, and I don't think that's really feasible. And I don't think Ted's advocating that. But I would say if, if someone is strictly pushing protein at the expense of, of, I would say fat, but fat or carb, I think that that in in infinity, you know, as they continue to expand that, I think that you're left in a very um, unhealthy state. Right. So to, to it's me- It's like a bodybuilder cut diet, which is not very yeah, sustainable. Yeah, I, I don't think it is. And, and so to me, I actually, what I like about the PDE ratio is that I actually think it should be around one, where, where protein by mass, by mass, I say that one, not, not by calorie percent, but by mass, where a one-to-one of protein to fat to me is- about perfect with carbs, maybe filling in a little bit of that gap. But I also, what I like about Ted's perspective, I'll end that idea with this. I like that he separated protein from fuel. And and I think that our conventional way of looking at human nutrition, where we give a, a caloric value to protein and we encourage people to, you know, it's on the label as part of our calories. I think that is totally wrong. It, it, protein is not a fuel. Even in the case of gluconeogenesis, where someone's eating a lot of protein and fasting, lactate is actually providing most of that background for the gluconeogenesis. It's not the protein, although it certainly can, but we shouldn't look at protein as, an, as a fuel and thus giving it a comparable calorie to carbs, which, which I actually think is not true because of the thermic effect of food. We waste energy even just metabolizing protein. So the actual net energy is less. Um, nevertheless, one thing I really like about the PE, the PDE perspective or diet that Ted has really espoused is to separate protein from the rest because glucose and fat are fuel. Protein is a building block. It's, it's not fair to protein. In fact, I think it's wrong to look at protein as a fuel. The sooner we appreciate its relevance in just human health and, and self-function separate from the fuel that you get from carb and fat. But even that, well, the better. But I will finish that thought by saying, even fat, it isn't fair to look at fat as a fuel. Like carbohydrate, carbohydrate, you can say, is purely fuel. There's nothing else about it. Fat becomes ketones. Fat becomes, we have cholesterol. We have phospholipids. We're creating cell membranes. We're creating intracellular organelles. Intracellular organelles, you know, the, the nucleus and the mitochondria, the lysosomes, we have lipid membranes. So even fat, while it is a fuel, it also shouldn't only be looked at as a fuel. It is absolutely an essential piece of cells. Or, or like I said, with protein, protein is a building block. So too is fat. Yep. Are there, I mean, maybe this is nitty gritty, but aren't there some receptors that have uh, sugar on them? That, that might be just like uh, fairly, fairly bespoke, but in terms of like major organelles or lipids, absolutely. You know, you don't need carbohydrate unless you're a plant essentially. And you have cell walls that have some carbohydrate or starch in them. But for animals, there's not that much structural use of carbohydrate. No, in, in fact, I, I, I hate to say this. And so I'll be, I'll be, I'll be a little, I want anyone to know I, I'm speculating a little bit, but I, I don't believe I mean, there are things called glycoproteins. There are, there are these structures, but I just don't know. I, I, I don't know the degree to which the diet has to supply it, I guess I'd say. So, so let's, let's maybe come to, this is what I'd say. Maybe 
there may be some role for a glucose having provided some piece of structure to some molecule that is necessary for cell function. And I'm sure there's a listener who already can think of some. I would simply counter that by saying, yeah, but you don't have to eat the glucose to get it. You can make it if you need it. But even still, let's admit that perhaps even glucose itself has a building block component, but I can't think of one. Yep. I think that's pretty fair statement. I, I, I agree. I think it might be just very, very niche or specific. And I think the body would be able to create its own glucose reserves from gluconeogenesis. One thing that I don't want to skip is, I think it's always like a contention depending on who you talk to, but proteins impact on insulin. We talked about obviously carbohydrate, big uh, insulin response, fat, as you just articulated, very, very mild, if not no insulin response. Uh, People always have different counterexamples like whitefish, uh, it, it spikes insulin response. Uh, what do you make of that story? Um, I know we talked a little bit about this on the previous podcast where we talked about, and I think it's reflected in, your, in the question or the answer to Kara, where the insulin response to protein is much lower in a fat-adapted state or a low-carbohydrate state. What is your updated thinking around proteins impact on insulin? Maybe we can break it down to specific types of amino acids, whether that's leucine, alanine, other, other subtypes. Yep. In fact, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. If someone is noticing a difference in, in their glycemic response to proteins, all things equal, assuming glucose itself is not being consumed with the protein, then I would say the only way I can explain it is because of the difference the different amino acid profiles. When we say that protein is insulinogenic to varying degrees, it really isn't fair. What we should say is amino acids have inherent insulinogenic capacities. There are some that have no effect whatsoever and others, and I wish I was more familiar with this. Dr. Stu Phillips could tell us all of them right now, but there are other amino acids that do, that are insulinogenic, um, like I think leucine, alanine, maybe arginine. I'm sorry if someone's listening and they know I'm already wrong. I'm, I'm pretty certain alanine is the kind of the, the generally looked at amino acid as being the most gluconeogenic. But in the case of like someone saying, well, I ate this lean fish and I have a bigger effect than when I eat beef, it's, I would say it's most certainly a result of, of the amino acid profile. Got it. So um, I think one thing that I've just become much more attuned towards is tissue specificity towards different types of uh, signaling pathways. I, I think I think a lot about it in terms of mTOR, right? I think within a fasting or a low carbohydrate context or a longevity context, people will talk about inhibiting mTOR, inhibiting mTOR. You want to have low injury state, trade all these longevity pathways. But obviously mTOR is necessary for building lean muscle tissue. So if you're trying to actually be strong or robust, you want actually mTOR to be triggered around muscle groups that you want to be, uh, be gaining strength in. One of our uh, listeners, Setchum World, asks, can you talk about insulin resistance as it manifests in different tissues? Is there a similar concept of tissue specificity for insulin resistance? And then can you also talk about a glucose intolerance spike that occurs when someone on a low carb diet consumes a large dose of sugar. This is actually what we talked about in terms of acute glucose intolerance. Is this temporary spike dangerous in of itself, even if insulin works well and brings levels to normal quickly? So two-part question. Yeah. So in fact, I would just say at the risk of discounting the question, I, I, hopefully that second question has been answered. 
when we talked earlier about that, what I said was this sort of inverse or reverse metabolic inflexibility or this acute glucose intolerance or this acute glucose sparing, I think that all of those terms describe this phenomenon where the body has shifted from glucose burning and it might take it a day or two to remember or, or just to shift back to burning it rapidly. So I'd say question two, hopefully that's answered. Question one, yeah, the, the tissue specificity with regards to insulin resistance is, is so relevant. I'm glad for the question because it helps us really understand the problem with insulin resistance in a general sense. So in order to understand this, I, I want to remind the listeners that insulin resistance is two things. One, insulin isn't working the same way at different cells in the body. And then two, there's hyperinsulinemia or elevated insulin. Now let's go through some examples. So in the case of muscle, when a muscle cell is insulin resistant, insulin in general, almost global terms, does less of what it used to. So you have slower glucose uptake. So the body has higher glucose levels for longer. And in uh, say second, it doesn't inhibit proteolysis as well as it did before. So normally insulin will defend muscle protein, but if the muscles become insulin resistant, we, we can't defend it as well. And so the muscle can be breaking down protein, which is why in insulin resistance, one consequence is muscle loss or sarcopenia, the wasting of muscle. That's thought to be one, one possible effect of muscle insulin resistance. Now, in contrast, let's take the endothelial cell and so the, the cells that line our blood vessels, the endothelial cells also become insulin resistant. And in a normal state, normally insulin will flow through a capillary bed, come to those insulin, those endothelial cells, bind the insulin receptors, and induce the production of a molecule called nitric oxide. And then nitric oxide will induce vasodilation. And so that's a way of insulin increasing blood flow through a tissue and as a consequence, lowering blood pressure, albeit acutely. However, with insulin resistance, the endothelial cells do become insulin resistant, just like the muscle cells. And now insulin comes, binds, it's supposed to be inducing a vasodilation. It doesn't. The vessels stay constricted and thus blood pressure stays higher than it was. And the tissue doesn't get the amount of blood that insulin wanted it to get. Now let's compare that with say the ovaries in a woman. The ovaries don't become insulin resistant. And so in the case of whole body insulin resistance, the ovaries continue to respond to insulin perfectly fine. But now they're seeing too much because the body is hyperinsulinemic. And the reality at the, at the ovaries is fascinating. Insulin inhibits an enzyme called aromatase. So it's always in a normal, healthy woman with low levels of insulin, it's providing just a base, subtle sort of inhibition. But aromatase is important because it is what converts testosterone into the estrogens, the prototypical female sex hormones. So the, the reality is in men and women, all estrogens were once testosterone. And that enzyme aromatase, of which women have much, much more than men, is what converts the testosterone into estrogens. If a woman has hyperinsulinemia because of insulin resistance, the ovaries are a, 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 an innocent bystander where that high level of insulin is now inhibiting aromatase too much. And so through every menstrual cycle, her ovaries are waiting for this big estrogen spike, the brain, and we have an LH surge and an estrogen surge. And now one of those little follicles that have been developing actually ovulates and all the rest of the follicles go away. 
In this case of polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a disease of hyperinsulinemia, the high insulin inhibits the aromatase. There is no estrogen spike. There is no ovulation. So all of those little follicles that are developing in the ovaries every month, they stay and they become cysts. And then as the month comes around again, we add more follicles and they stay. And so the ovaries get several times bigger than they were before loaded with these ovarian cysts because they couldn't ovulate. You have to have one um, follicle ovulate for the rest to go away. So that's a case of a cell suffering from the hyperinsulinemia where it itself has not become insulin resistant. The body has, and the hyperinsulinemia is driving another problem. Before and you move on, I want to, to almost round inter it out. interject a little sidebar here, which is that I know that a lot of people might be listening saying, oh, I want to inhibit aromatase if, if I'm a man and I want to have higher testosterone. What goes wrong there if I'm just like, oh, I hear this. Yeah. Hey, Ben's telling me if I have hyperinsulinemia, I'm going to convert less of my testosterone into estradiol. Why is that problematic? Yeah. So so first of all, men need estrogen. It's, it's, it's essential for both libido, uh, for even for growth, for height even. So you don't want to wage war on estrogen. What is so interesting about this, Jeffrey, is that when you have a guy who's abusing anabolic steroids, he's taking testosterone, that higher amount of testosterone will feed through aromatase, making a higher amount of estrogens causing fat deposition in a typical female pattern. So that's where you have a guy abusing steroids and he starts to develop breasts, you know, uh, so that will happen. And so what always happens as a man is taking anabolic sex steroids like testosterone or derivatives, he also takes aromatase inhibitors to prevent aromatase from converting all of that excess testosterone into estrogens so he can get the purely anabolic effect without all the female aspects that he certainly does not want. So anyway, that's some of the nuance there. One thing that's so interesting with regards to the use of insulin as an anabolic hormone is comparing the physiques of bodybuilders from Arnold's and Lou Ferrigno's time to modern day bodybuilders. Modern day bodybuilders are without a doubt bigger. I mean, they are just massive, bigger than Arnold and bigger than Lou Ferrigno, but they also have these protruding bellies, what's called bubble bellies where you know they're massive, but you look at their belly and there's a six pack, but underneath the six pack is this big round protrusion. There's no other word for it. It, it is, I've, I heard this on a podcast once and I will say it as just me passing on something I heard. So I don't speak as an authority on this, but the thought is this bubble belly only started when insulin started to be abused as a hormone. And it could be that insulin is promoting this growth of fat cells albeit behind this incredible layer of muscle. And so they still have a very beautiful six pack. It's just bulging out. Whereas Arnold and Lou, they were they would just come down to this incredible tapered look in an extremely lean, flat six pack. It's tempting to speculate that the abuse of insulin nowadays is driving this selective fat growth in the visceral space, which is most certainly where we do not it. want it. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, lastly, with selective insulin resistance, I almost fear that I've gone beyond the point of anyone appreciating this anymore, but the liver uh, creates an interesting, and you mentioned the word bifurcation. In fact, that is in the title of this seminal study that was published decades ago, finding a bifurcation in insulin signaling at the insulin-resistant liver. Very briefly, insulin will normally tell a liver to store glucose as glycogen, thereby lowering blood glucose, and it will promote the synthesis of lipids, including releasing lipids on VLDL. So making and releasing triglycerides on these triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, VLDL and LDL. However, at the insulin-resistant liver, uh, the lipogenic effect is uncompromised. It is unaffected. Insulin still stimulates lipogenesis. 
at, even though the cell is insulin resistant, what it fails to do now is promote the storage of glycogen. And thus, it stops protecting. Normally, insulin will inhibit the breakdown of glycogen, wanting the liver cell to store the glucose. It can't do that anymore. That is the effect that is compromised in insulin resistance. So now it's releasing glucose. So the insulin-resistant liver is leaking energy in the form of triglycerides and in the form of glucose, adding to this metabolic storm in the body. So in the liver, we see this interesting state of a true bifurcation within one cell type itself, whereas other cell types like the hypertrophic fat cell or the muscle cell or endothelial cells, they just become insulin resistant. The liver has a bit of a, and, and as opposed to the theca cells in the ovary, they don't become insulin resistant at all. And then you have the liver, which splits. Some of its effects are insulin resistant or compromised and some are yeah. not compromised. Yeah. And I think this is, I, I, I like nerding out and going deep into the tissues because again, I think this is part of the elegance of the system of, of humans where it again, seems too naive if these powerful signaling molecules affect all tissues equally the same. I mean, obviously your brain tissue is very different from the heart, very different from liver. So it stands to reason that there's different receptors to these things and there's different roles of how they respond to different receptors. So I think it, again, it will be a part of what's, I would say part of just the common parlance of the community to just really understand, Hey, like mTOR is sometimes useful for building mass. And when we talk about, Hey, just crush mTOR, have rapamycin, like interesting conversation with Keith Barr over at UC Davis saying that, Hey, you don't necessarily, you want to be smart of where you're applying these, these interventions. Oh yeah. Like, do you want to be having, yeah, I right? totally agree. Um, so I think the same thing with insulin here, uh, it impacts tissues very differently. We need to be thoughtful around these like broad brush interventions or explanations. Yeah. Yeah. So with mTOR and I didn't mention that, although you mentioned it at the outset of the, of this, this topic. Yeah. You want, you want it to be cyclical. Even if mTOR is constantly elevated, you do develop an mTOR resistance, even at the muscle, like the most sort of anabolic tissue we have in mind. My colleague, two doors down, is an mTOR AMPK expert, and he was he is the first to say you need mTOR for anabolism, but it can't if it's constantly on, it starts to undo itself. It cannot continue. So you want to spike it and bring it back down. I would say one problem with mTOR and its relevance and longevity is that when someone is living a life of constantly elevated insulin, you, which they do by eating starches and sugars every two hours of the day, so every waking moment is a state of elevated insulin, they run the risk of keeping mTOR constantly elevated, inhibiting autophagy, potentially mitigating muscle growth even, even as we look at insulin as an anabolic her, uh, hormone that people abuse for muscle growth. If there's too much all the time, it starts to undo itself. So it was a mechanism there. So my understanding is that mTOR is primarily activated by leucine and amino acid. Is insulin also have a pathway that feeds oh, yeah. into mTOR activation? Absolutely. In fact, at the level of the muscle cell, insulin activates mTOR about two times more than leucine does. So we can't ignore the relevant. That's part of why I, I somewhat push back against the protein phobic perspective when it comes to mTOR and aging. I don't, I do think that is a wrong perspective, but I very much appreciate the scientists who are doing it. I'm glad that we can disagree. And I think some of that disagreement for me, some of my being skeptical of the protein centric paradigm with mTOR and aging is that when you look at humans age 65 and beyond, the humans that eat the lowest protein have the highest mortality. 
that to me directly challenges the idea that proteins are delaying or, or, or diminishing healthy aging. If that and, were the and, case. Yeah. And sarcopenic is one of the bigger killers of elderly yes, folks. That's right. right. Muscle yep, loss. Yep. High so. muscle mass is one of the greatest defenders against early mortality. And you just can't do that if, uh, if you're not eating enough protein. Yeah, no, actually this anticipates a question that I want to get your thoughts on. So Kurt Hansen asks, or it just has a comment here that Walter Longo talks a lot about low protein for longevity, and we just touched upon it a little bit. Is he wrong? Blue zones eat little protein. Are they wrong? Is IGF-1 mTOR irrelevant in metabolically healthy people living low-carb, high-protein lifestyles? Is low-carb a natural mTOR in inhibitor? What's wrong with rapamycin? So we're just touching upon these topics. A couple grab bag questions. Feel free to answer in yeah. whichever ones that you, you find interesting and relevant here. Yeah. So I've already sort of stated my my reluctance in looking at mTOR and aging through the lens of protein. I do think that if we're worried about mTOR, and, and I think the evidence supports that in cells and in rodent models and animal models, that there, there is probably a reason to scrutinize mTOR, although in humans, we don't have any comparable data on that. Everyone should know that. Anything we apply to humans, we can only speculate in longevity. So let's let's suppose that mTOR matters in longevity. I would then just go back to the, top, the point I made a moment ago, which is why fear protein, which will have a very acute insulin spike, I mean, or mTOR activation. You know, you eat a protein-rich food, those amino acids will induce mTOR activation, and then it goes off, as opposed to insulin being elevated all the time, which is how most people live. So I wouldn't say protein is irrelevant. I would say if we're ignoring insulin, and yet we're still invoking the relevance of mTOR, then we're wrong. I, I do think if mTOR is relevant, we need to appreciate protein. I'm not saying we don't. Although I do think the human data doesn't necessarily support that, like I just mentioned in adults over age 65. But if mTOR does matter, all the more reason to look at what's spiking insulin and keeping insulin elevated, like I said, all day because of how we eat. I just don't, I, I don't think that scrutinizing protein is the way to ensure longevity. And to add to that and to bring the relevance back to insulin, there's a study that looked at the key common variables across long-lived families, what they called familial longevity. And if I remember the study correctly, I think it was in the title, insulin sensitivity is the most important variable of familial longevity. And so they find across these long-lived families, the main feature is their insulin sensitivity. In other words, low insulin. It, it didn't mention their consumption of protein. Now that maybe is a flaw because they didn't measure it. I would just say to me, the data stack up in a way that I have a healthier respect for the mTOR activation, activating effects of insulin. And I don't really have a similar fear of the mTOR stimulating effects of protein. I, I just don't think they're comparable. So that's, that's my two bits on that topic. Yeah, I think that is quite compelling. And especially if you think about what mTOR is, it's a nutrient sensing pathway and a more primal way to detect it. I think leucine is a great way to detect some sense of nutrients, but insulin I mean, that's when you're trying to essentially a storage hormone. You're bringing nutrients into the yes. body, or at least glucose. Insulin is the hormone. Yeah, the earlier the early physiologists like George Cahill and, and even George, uh, even um, Roger Unger that I've already mentioned, they 
described insulin as the fed hormone. So when they would look at, especially George Cahill, I encourage anyone to look at his work. It is so cool. Yeah, Cahill's we just a don't do stuff. We just yeah. don't do stuff like that anymore. Uh, and you actually couldn't get uh, ethical approval to do what starve he did. Starve people for 40 days and all yeah, that I know. stuff. Yeah. And starve them and inject insulin in the midst of the starvation. I mean, it's just shocking what he could get away with. He would refer to, when looking at the fed and fasted state, it basically was dictated by insulin. Insulin is up, that is a fed state. Insulin is down, that is a fasted state. He defined fed and fasted states by the changes in insulin. And I just think as much as we learn and much as we know, let's not forget the lessons of our past. And and I think George Cahill really, he didn't talk about protein. He didn't, I don't think he even talked about mTOR. He looked at insulin and used that to define the fed and fasted states. If fasting is a way to promote longevity, and we have diets that kind of mimic fasting states. To me, a fasting mimicking diet is a diet that controls carbohydrates and is liberal with protein and fat rather than a diet that is uh, controls protein and is liberal with carbohydrates, which, which it is, unfortunately, in the conventional sense. Um, so to me, I, I define a fast, uh, there's the true caloric fast, which you're not eating anything or drinking, or a nutrient fast which is focused on protein and fat, which keeps insulin low because insulin is how I define fed or fasted states like George Cahill. Yeah. And I think that's super cool because I think there are uh, starting to have argumentation of what is a fast mimicking diet. And I think I'm on, I'm on your side here, which is that. Uh, Welcome aboard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually very, very important because I feel like being calorically restricted, but high carb is kind of what some people are pushing, right? Like kind of vegan, high carb, but like kind yep. of under caloric and you're getting maybe the caloric deficit to mimic ketosis, but you're doing it in such a backwards force contrived way than actually just being liberal with fat and protein and much more nutrient dense. And you're like supporting that metabolic pathway in a much more natural fashion. Yeah. Hey, well, listen, Jeffrey, if you and I agree on this, it has to be right. <laughs> yeah. We're the smartest people in the, the world. Debate, the debate is settled. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish. And I think the point around just like clarifying insulin being the signal to switch determining fasted versus fed, I think is uh, very, very stark. And especially when we think about the current state of uh, standard of care for type two diabetes, oh, yeah. just injecting more insulin. It's like, wow, yep. it, it puts it very, very stark that this is already a disease where people often are overweight and, and all of that. And now you're signaling fed more all the time because you're forcing people yep. to take even more and more insulin. Again, and it's, disast it's disastrous. When, when you give a type 2 diabetic insulin as a therapy, they get fatter and sicker than they did before. And that to me is just- it, Right, you never no, get and that off is, of it. No, that is proof of concept that it is not a disease of managing glucose. It, it, the, the glucose itself is a manifestation of the true problem, which is insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. And so giving them, giving the type 2 diabetic more insulin, I've said this before, and I beg pardon of anyone who's heard me say it, is analogous to giving an alcoholic another glass of wine, helping it will solve the problem. It's the alcohol that caused the problem. Let's get rid of it. It's the high insulin that's caused the problem in type 2 diabetes. Let's get rid of it. Let's bump it back down to low levels. And then with that paradigm being accepted, we then say, well, what's the best way to lower insulin? Well, it's to cut out the carbs. Control yeah. the carbs. I feel like the tide is finally starting to shift slowly. I think when we first had this conversation, it was much more, I guess, controversial. I think yeah. folks at Verta Health and, and much more studies showing that 
And I think actually the American Diabetes Association is actually including a low-carb diet as part of their standard of care now. So the tide is shifting. We're not just yelling into the ether. I think so, so too. I, yeah. I, I think this data is just so compelling. And then the last area, which is a little bit of a fun question. I don't know if you, you know Jerry Teixeira, but uh, oh, yeah. uh, he's, he's also big on uh, Twitter. He wants to ask, uh, what are you currently working on in terms of calisthenics? I think he means this as a joke. <laughs> Does calisthenics yeah. enhance autophagy? But seriously, what is he training? Maybe he can comment on exercise autophagy interplay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So he does know. Uh, he boy, man, that guy is such a freaking beast. Um, and he, I would say that anyone who who is curious about calisthenics, check out Jerry and and his. He has a YouTube page. He he's a beast. So you normally look at people who do calisthenics like like me as just kind of a little wispy. You know, if I I hate to say that, but you know, I'm on the scrawny side of things. But he is stacked, and and he can just he can do these things that are phenomenal. So I started calisthenics when I turned forty about three years ago because I'd always had two goals, and I just had never I never even expressed them as goals. But I thought I'm forty. What do I what have, what are some things I really always wanted to do? I always wanted to figure out a Rubik's cube. I'd never been able to do that before, and so I figured that out in about a week. And then number two was to do a freestanding handstand push up. Like put my hands down, kick up, go inverted, hold the handstand, go down and then back up. And I still can't do it. So I continue to work on my handstand and I will credit Jerry. One of the things that I find is helping is I'm working on my, my, my forearm flexor strength. I found that a lot of the problem was as I was tipping over onto my back, he has some exercises to strengthen the forearm flexors by strengthening those with some of the moves he shows. I can resist that tipping better and I can just keep a constant tension on the front part of my hand. It's definitely helping me keep my handstand hold longer. But the moment I start to come down, I get, I get to about not, not 90 degrees. I get to still an obtuse angle and I just, I, I have to bail. I lose it every time. So I'm working on my handstand pushup and my, I think it's the back lever where you're hanging onto a bar and your, your body goes straight. I can't do it yet. Um, I can kind of do a straddle lever where I put my legs out just to reduce the, the the lever length, so to speak. But that's what I'm working on. And without a doubt, exercise activates autophagy. Uh, and, and much of that benefit, I would say, is likely a result of lowering insulin faster. I was uh, uh, I gave this idea to the student's thesis committee. He's a graduate student in exercise science, Landon uh, Deru, D-E-R-U, Deru probably. And I gave his he and his mentor this idea of let's look at fasting combined with or without exercise. And does that accelerate both ketogenesis and does it alter the insulin to glucagon ratio? And the answer was yes. In both instances, insulin lowered faster, ketogenesis accelerated faster when a fast started with an exercise session. And I, we're going to submit that for publication soon. So to Jerry's question, I'm extrapolating a little bit insofar as insulin is a powerful inhibitor of autophagy. Exercise combined with fasting lowers insulin faster I would say it's a pretty safe assumption autophagy will be activated better. But I think he was probably asking that with sort of tongue in cheek. Uh, but even still, I would also add there's really no way to measure autophagy in people. So we can only really speculate. Yeah, I think that's another one of those things where autophagy is one of these things that's also very tissue specific. And yeah, there's no good biomarker to measure what's going on unless no, no, there you isn't. just open up a cell and see, oh, are we <laughs> digesting ourselves? Yeah. Or not? Yeah. I mean, I you mean, could, you could take, you could probably, you could take blood samples of like white blood cells or even a muscle biopsy and measure the activation of autophagy proteins in those cells. 
but that's that's not a technique you're doing in a lab. You know, at, at least at a clinical lab, that's a technique you're doing at a, a at a, lab an academic bench. lab. Right, right, right. Yep. Cool. So. I, I mean, we're running a little bit over time here. So I want to wrap up and give it a, a chance to shout out all your projects. I mean, you got the book. I know you have some other projects you're working on. Where do people stay in touch and follow along? I know that you're you know busy and, and out there you know spreading your ideas. Where do people keep tuning in? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So again, Jeffrey, thanks for the platform here, the opportunity to talk. So anyone who's curious, um, go get my book. It's available anywhere books are sold. Uh, help out a, a poor professor, <laughs> although it's so depressing. You, the, the author makes so little from every book sold, but even still. So I, I've long ago given up the idea of retiring early, but go get it and you'll find it useful, I'm sure. I, I, I did um, start a, a shake business with a couple of my brothers. Anyone who's curious about a, what I think is the best low-carb shake out there, very deliberately designed. Just You can learn more about it. I won't say more about it here, um, but learn more about it. Go to a website called Get Health. And health is spelled H-L-T-H, gethealth.com, and you can see about it there. And and then lastly, and I will be providing blog content to that site soon as well. And then other than that, on social media, I'm, I'm moderately active. And basically, it's always just me sharing the latest, most relevant science in uh, human metabolism. So, for example, today I just made a little post about a study published over the weekend looking at the differences in a low-carb versus low-fat diet in older adults age 60 to 75. And the results were phenomenal. Five times more fat loss, three times more visceral fat loss, greater improvements in insulin sensitivity, and all of this in the midst of better muscle maintenance on the low-carb diet in these adults. So there clearly, there truly is a better way to lose weight and maintain muscle compared with the conventional low-fat, low-calorie diet, and that is namely low-carb. So that's my social media involvement. It's never pictures of me and my family or anything personal. It's just research. And you can find me at Ben Bickman and Bickman is no C B I K M A N Ben Bickman PhD. That that's basically it. Book shake and then social media involvement. Yeah. And that's besides your actual day job of running research and teaching students. So yeah, in fact, let me say really quickly. Yeah. One study that we just submitted last week, you'll get a kick out of this. We just submitted the study last week, looking at a broad gene analysis in human brain. So this is postmortem brain. We looked at all of the enzymes and genes involved, the genes involved in glyc glucose metabolism. So that is glucose uptake into, into brain structures, the main cells, microglia, neuron, and I think astrocytes. That was that the other one? I can't remember. We looked at three different cell types in the human brain. But we looked at all the genes involved in glucose uptake and glycolysis. And we looked at the genes involved in ketone uptake and ketone metabolism. And in the demented or Alzheimer's brains, virtually every gene of glycolysis was lower, significantly reduced compared to the normal brain. When we looked at the ketone-related um, catabolic genes, totally normal. There, like no deficit. There was like one or two out of the dozens that we looked at. And that just is lending more and more evidence to this idea that in Alzheimer's brain, uh, in the Alzheimer's brain, if you are forcing it to only use glucose, like for example, because insulin is chronically elevated, it can only then rely on glucose. It can't get all of its energy from the glucose alone. So give the brain a break. It can continue to rely on ketones. Those pathways are uncompromised. 
And that might be part of what happens in the Alzheimer's patient when you put them into ketosis. And within hours, you can detect genuine improvements in cognition. We are shedding some light on the molecular mechanisms that might explain that. So again, we just submitted that last week. Fingers crossed that it gets published by the end of the year. Amazing. So the, really the genetic component is starting to unfold as well, and uh, in addition to all the yep. physiology and the metabolism that we're talking That's about. That's right. Is, yeah, well said. Very, very cool. So I'm sure that we're going we're gonna to have to have you back on for round three. I know that there's a number of other questions that we didn't even get to, but we'll yeah. have you back on. And it was a lot of fun and an, always an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, my pleasure. Again, thanks again for the invitation. It, I, like you said, it's always such a great time. These are these are high-level discussions that I, my genuine hope is someone comes away from this feeling enriched, that they've learned something uh, not only interesting, but also very practical. Then if, if so, then we've done our job well. Awesome. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye.